This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 166, Buiti Binafi, Bienvenidos Bitches, and thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes. What? No, there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist, allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth, and I just happen to be white. She's an accomplice, y'all. It's not her <laughs> fault. <laughs> We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on a future episode also our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use fruitloopspod for all our social media footnotes for each episode can be found on our website plus check it out for the different ways that you can support the show become a patreon and you can also support our show by supporting our sponsors yeah so are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about David Tabo Similane, a serial killer from Eswatini, Africa, who was sentenced to death for the murder of 28 women and children, but is suspected of murdering at least 45 people. This was a fascinating it case was. to research. Yeah. I, and first of all, Eswatini, Africa, I have a giant map of Africa in my home, and I'd never seen or noticed the it. country yeah. Yeah. yeah, or heard of it. And it's right there yep. in front of our eyes. Yep. Anyway, um, so before we get into it, how you doing? I'm all right. You know, just maintaining. Yes. How are you doing? Okay. Okay. Well, I'm, um, I, I've missed you. Um, uh, everything is, is good. No complaints. Um, I'm healthy. I have what I need. Um, school has started. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah, we're just back in the groove. Right on. Like, exciting stuff. Yeah. Um, oh, and somebody got fired at work today oh no uh yeah it was it was one of those weird things where they did an emergency meeting and then they said this person no longer works here and then all the and uh it's just it it was wild now apparently what happened is this person said that the company we work for sucks like (gasps) 
out loud in public to like and then like managers, VIP, oh, like, CEO like right, people, right there, yeah, in right front there. of everybody, wow. and you can't do that yeah. with your job. And so it's just not a so good idea. Yeah, not a good idea. So let that be a lesson to us all. <laughs> that do not bite the <laughs> hand that, that feeds yeah. us shall we <laughs> amen now let's get into some listener letters right. where are you there you go well hello angels <laughs> yeah. oh yes all right what in the world is in that bag beth well we got a letter from linda who responded to wendy who had asked what's so good about ohio <laughs> Oh, yeah. Linda, thank you for yeah. your email. <laughs> yeah, Linda's from Dayton, and she said it's a good place to be from, but also a good place to leave. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> we also got a review calling us racist against white people. So, Uh-oh. how does that work when white people have all the power? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is a thing, but it's inconsequential and it's not what we're doing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I have to say uh, again that talking about racism is not racist. <laughs> no, it is not. No, it is not. Plus, you know, I'm white and so is Minnie and so is your husband. So, right, right. Yeah, no, a lot, of, a lot I, of white people around here. A lot absolutely. of snow around you. <laughs> Lots of snow. And I love people, human beings. And Mm -hmm. I love people who can treat me as such. And I think that, um, you know, more importantly, if we don't talk about the problem, like racism, then we can't fix it. Right. You can't just like sweep it under the rug. Absolutely. And I am, I am not racist. I'm anti-racist, but I hate white supremacy and I hate patriarchy and I will not apologize for those things. No, you don't have to. Right. And those things are problems that we have in our society. Again, white supremacy, patriarchy, poverty, crime, just to name a few of the things that we're dealing with as citizens in this world. And I can understand that if you don't experience racism or discrimination daily or care to listen or understand someone you care about who experiences try to uh, try to empathize that new things these new conversations can make you uncomfortable and seem like attacks but they're not they're not, no, they're not. <laughs> so just you know the discomfort might come we all experience i mean i experienced it as a woman as a person of color that discomfort all the time um so if you're new to this just ride with it and try to learn from it. Yeah. Um, also, uh, we got we have no new Patreons this week. Okay. But that's okay. Yeah. For those of y'all who are on Patreon, we look forward to our video club party and our Q&A coming up. Um, what's the streaming thing we're watching? The worst man oh, in America? The, the, the most hated man in America. The most hated man on the internet. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, before we forget, I wanted to say thank you, Lindsay B, for your glorious message. Hello. And also, Linda, uh, as we said, she said there's good things about Ohio. I just don't remember everything she said. <laughs> but thank you so much, everybody, for rocking with oh, us. Oh, Olive Garden. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> the Olive Garden was, um, I guess, Italian or ethnic representation, which is so funny. Um, so, <laughs> um, but uh, shout out to everybody listening in Ohio. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to get into the story when we come back.
On the morning of August 1, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. We're back. We're back. (laughs) Now remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Our subject today is David Tabo Similane, a serial killer from Eswatini, who is convicted of killing 28 women and children between 1999 and 2001. All right. So let's get into some stats, shall we? So David Tabo, uppercut, uppercut, (laughs) hook, hook. Was there kicks in Tybo? I have no idea. You never did it? No. Oh, what? Nope. <laughs> you never... never did the videos. Oh nope. my God. Okay, nope. well, totally unrelated. But anyway, David Tybo Similani, aka David Albert Mlanga, aka Pepisa Yende, uh, he was convicted of murdering 28 women and children, but he probably murdered over 35 and possibly as many as 45, maybe even more. Um, so we just want to say rest in power to all the victims. Um, we didn't get all of their names, but we just wanted to um, lift them up and also thoughts and prayers to the loved ones and communities left in the wake of these heinous crimes. So now we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, Eswatini, officially the Kingdom of Eswatini, and formerly the Kingdom of Swaziland, is a landlocked country in southern Africa. It's bordered by Mozambique to its northeast and South Africa to its northwest, south, and southeast. The capital and largest city is Mbabane. Um, yeah, it's at the southern tip of Africa, and South Africa is like the country is giving it a hug. It Aww, is what it looks cute. like to me. Yeah, <laughs> except South Africa is... 
I don't know. It's got it's, it's got some, you know, explaining to do. But uh, Eswatini is one of the smallest countries in Africa, a little smaller than New Jersey. However, the climate and topography are diverse. There are four well-defined physiographic regions: the high veld. Is it veld or level? Veld. My eyes are playing tricks on me. Let me clean my glasses. I think it's Dutch. It comes from Dutch. Oh, you know? mm, those other colonizers yeah. that we don't, uh, don't talk about so much. We don't talk about so much. Um, maybe it's the wooden shoes. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so uh, the high veld, the middle veld, the low veld, and the lubombo escarpment. We should mention that these uh, names of places and names of people are not in our native language. And we apologize in advance yeah. for butchering any of the pronunciation. Yeah. We mean no disrespect. And we're, we're trying. Yes, we are trying. The climate in Eswatini is generally subtropical, but subject to steep temperature and precipitation gradients because of a fall in altitude of about 4,000 feet over a distance of about 50 miles. Isn't that Whoa. wild? Yeah. Yeah. Quite a drop. And during the rainy summer season in the western high veld, the mountains turn a tropical green. Dotting mm. the landscape are enormous boulders piled high enough in some areas that you can go caving underneath. Whoa! Yeah. In between our grasslands and forest. It sounds really beautiful. It does. It really does. Archaeologists have found human remains in eastern Swaziland that have been dated back 110,000 years. The earliest stone tools found on ancient river terraces date back more than 250,000 years. Wow. And they try to tell black kids in school that we don't have no history. Hello! Uh, um. Yeah. So the ancestors of the Swazi came down from east Central Africa hundreds of years ago, along with the ancestors of the Zulu and Kosa peoples. Swaziland was originally part of Mozambique, and the Swazi moved into the Mozambique area prior to the 16th century. About 1820, facing aggression from their southern neighbors, they moved northward to establish a safer heartland in what is now called Central Eswatini. So the southern neighbors would be the South Africans. The Zulu. Oh, oh, the Zulu. Okay. Yeah. So King Maswati the second ruled from 1840 to 1868, and the people living there became known as Baka Maswati, or the people of Maswati. During the 1800s, European settlers, traders, missionaries, and hunters moved into the area with the intention of making it their home. Huh. But y'all, people already live there. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, I think I'm going to move in. Can yeah. you move your stuff? I want to put my bed here. Excuse me, this is mine. <laughs> oh my God. The audacity, the caucasity of it all. Yeah. Oh, man. Europeans called the people living there the easier to pronounce Swazi and their territory mm. Swaziland. In 1877, the British annexed the kingdom. In 1881, the British government signed a convention recognizing Swazi independence. This independence was largely on paper, however, and in 1894, Swaziland became a protectorate of the South African Republic, which was under British control following the Second Anglo-Boer War. Now, I started to look up the word protectorate, but I didn't finish copying and pasting it into my Google search bar. That means territory, right? I think so. Let me let me check. Okay, protectorate. A state that is controlled and protected by another. Yeah, it sounds hmm. pretty much like a colony. Sounds awful imperialist Yes, to it me. sounds very Ugh. similar to a colony. Yes. So 
Uh, the arrangement continued until 1906 when the kingdom became a high commission territory under the rulership of a British commissioner. Swazis were made to live in native areas that were situated like a patchwork quilt across the Swaziland map. And by the way, all this is already so problematic. Yeah. They're saying we're going to pronounce we're going to call you Swazis just because it's just easier. Because, we don't want to yeah. we don't want to try. We're also going to just move in. Also, we're going to just on paper. We're going to pretend that you have independence. Pseudo sovereignty. Yeah. yeah. But well, you um, don't really. And then. Yeah. <laughs> and then we're going to put you in these areas. Yeah. Um, just we don't just want. for you guys that we don't want, though. <laughs> but you love it. Um, I love it. <laughs> You're going to love it. Yeah. This place has everything. No, sir, it doesn't. <laughs> And also, I was going to say, around this decade, the 1900 and the 1870s and 80s and 90s, the colonizers were real shooketh after Haiti won their independence and fought hard for it. And so there was sort of this effort, and, and I haven't read this anywhere, but this is my impression from learning the history, is that the colonizers were shook and nervous and did all they could to sort of um, placate uh, placate and 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 um what what do you call a box box them in like sort of trap them before they could get anything before they could yeah get any ideas yeah that makes sense yeah it does so for the next 66 years swaziland remained under british control many swazi men left their homes to raise money as mine workers to buy parts of their land back by 1963 limited self-government was allowed in 1967 swaziland became a kingdom under a new constitution. And on September 6, 1968, Swaziland was granted complete independence. Finally, we wouldn't have any of these problems if the colonizers hadn't come here the first yeah. place. But anyway, um, it was still a member of the Commonwealth of Nations and the King Sobuza II had come into power in 1921, became the head of state. The country was administered by a cabinet and a prime minister selected by parliament. Oh, that's fair. But just five years into his reign, Sobuza II repealed the constitution designed by the British and restored the traditional system of government in which all effective power remains in the royal capital. A system of local government known as the Tinkundla operates at the grassroots. Sobuza's concession to modern government was to retain the cabinet system with a prime minister and other ministers, but all were chosen by the king. Under his rule, Swaziland enjoyed a remarkable degree of political stability and economic progress. Emphasis was placed on education, which had been neglected in colonial times on health and on other human resource developments. King Sabuza's death on August 21st, 1982, was followed by a power struggle within the royal family, which was not finally resolved until 1986, when his son, Prince Makosetiv, 18 at the time, was installed as King Mazwari III. His rule had been characterized as autocratic with widespread corruption and excess and demands for democratic reform have followed his reign throughout the years. In 2005, King Maswati III acceded to popular demands for a new constitution, but he still maintained absolute power. 
According to the Constitution, King Mezwari III is not bound to any law, and he reportedly takes great advantage of it. Whoa! The king chooses his country's prime minister and cabinet and possesses the power to dissolve parliament. The Eswati authorities have used the Suppression of Terrorism Act of 2008 and the Sedition and Subversive Activities Act of 1938 to suppress free speech and stifle criticism of the monarch. Ooh! Yeah. No. Not so good. Uh, not so good. So his family holds a stake in numerous business ventures, including at least 25% cut of mining deals in the country. Much of that wealth goes towards supporting his large family of 15 wives and more than 30 children. In April 2018, I believe it was on the anniversary of 50 years of independence, King Mizwadi III announced that he was changing the official name of the country from the Kingdom of Swaziland to the Kingdom of Eswatini. And we may use Swaziland and Eswatini interchangeably during this episode because it was still called Swaziland when these crimes occurred. All right. So Eswatini is the only remaining absolute monarchy in Africa. It has been repeatedly criticized for violation of human rights and the wealth of the royal family against a background of extreme poverty, which affects the majority of the population. King Mizwadi III has a lavish lifestyle of luxury cars and palaces, and his children flaunt their opulent birthday parties on social media. Meanwhile, about six out of 10 of Eswatini citizens live in poverty. Many are on the brink of starvation and have to cross into South Africa to find work. I think that's a testament of like humanity and the the um, desire for wealth and power that is just so hard. I, I mean, once you get it, it's like you're not going to do anything to let it go. Right. And that seems like what King Maswati is is up yeah, to. Is. I understand it, but I don't get it you know i mean that's <laughs> never going to happen to me anyway but uh, it sounds something I interesting want, ever. <laughs> what okay no. speak for yourself <laughs> no yeah i am i am speaking for myself it, it's not on my list of to-do things no. you don't want to be the boss of everything nope. and have all the things nope don't okay i guess i don't either don't care <laughs> yeah that seems like a lot you know what i'm good i'm yeah. gonna stick to podcasting seems, seems too stressful to me yeah <laughs> So um, in September, and it reminds me of, of our guy, Nine, who just got raided by yeah, the FBI. The FBI. <laughs> but her emails. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, man. What a story. What a saga. Yeah. I'm yeah. just watching, eating my popcorn. I can't wait to read about it in 30 years. I wonder what the history books are going to say. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be so scathing. <laughs> is it going to be, what is it going to be whitewashed? You know, uh, kind of like how not. all the other bad things in our nation's history are. I, I don't know. I there's don't only know. a little paragraph for slavery and then Martin Luther King happens and then Obama and then we're and then, progress. Yeah, progress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I guess I guess we'll see. I just remember watching series about the presidents of the United States and mm-hmm. learning about all the presidents and like some of the stories were pretty bad. So there's I mean, it's documented pretty well. Yeah. Everything that's happened. So yeah. if so, it was whitewashed, it would be strange and it clearly intentional very strange yeah yeah so anyway um, back to the story sorry <laughs> t- t- side note tangent in september 2019 the eswatini registrar of companies refused to register eswatini sexual and gender minorities esgm as a company esgm is a human rights community-based advocacy organization which aims to advance the protection of human rights of lgbtq persons the eswatini registrar of companies stated that quote esgm's objectives were unlawful because same-sex sexual 
sexual acts are illegal in the country, unquote. ESGM argued that the registrar was wrong to assume that ESGM's purpose was illegal when there was no evidence of this. I mean, they're not having sex, right? Right. This is about (laughs) human rights, not about fucking. So um, (laughs) maybe they didn't read the memo right. Uh, So ESGM's mission is to protect and advance the interests of LGBTQ persons through education and advocacy. And Eswatini's laws do not make it a crime to be lesbian, gay, bisexual or transgender. On October 20th, 2020, the high court heard a challenge by ESGM. On April 29th, 2022, the Eswatini High Court upheld the decision to refuse registration of ESGM. Anger against the king has been building for years in the country, and in 2021, Eswatini was rocked by waves of pro-democracy protests. Demonstrations first erupted in May following the death of a 25-year-old law student, reportedly at the hands of police. Protests against Eswatini's monarchy system broke out on June 29, 2021, led by young people, particularly high school and university students, in response to the country's lack of development and opportunities. Shout out to those people for rising up. The authorities responded by banning protests and the Eswatini Communications Commission allegedly ordered network providers to shut down the Internet to prevent protesters from mobilizing online. They deployed police and soldiers who shot protesters indiscriminately with live ammunition. And by the way, we covered this on I remember this on our uh, on our extra extra episode. Oh, so we have heard of Esotini. Yeah, we have heard of Esotini. <laughs> just, I, re- I heard just remember about this. It and forgot about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, a lot of a lot of shit happened in 2020 and 2021. Oh my god, Hard to remember so, everything that oh, happened. Forgive, I mean, forgive us. Yeah. Our brains are. Yeah. Oh, there's right. only so much that could fit yeah. in there. Yeah. <laughs> so eight people died in clashes with security forces, initiating protests over the following months that have since become sporadic. According to authorities, a total of 37 people died in the prolonged protests, while Human Rights Watch puts the total at 46. However, a statement issued by the Eswatini Solidarity Fund puts the death toll closer to 80, with mm. around 300 injured and almost 1,000 arrested. Wow. At the time, Eswatini ranked 141 out of 180 countries in the Reporters Without Borders World Press Index on media freedom, based partially on constraints journalists face under the absolute monarchy and because courts are not permitted to prosecute crimes and abuses against representatives of the monarchy. What? Yeah. Although civil unrest does still occur sporadically, Eswatini is considered a safe country to visit. In fact, one of the safest countries in the region. Hmm. Hospitality is a cornerstone of Swazi culture, and Eswatini is known for its low crime rate and the friendliness and kindness of its locals. Although petty crime like theft and pickpocketing is still a problem. Yeah, but those are crimes of survival and struggle, which have to do with inequality. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, a little foreshadowing. Anyway, we will uh, get into the early life of Similani. Um, so David Taibo, I <laughs> won't do it. Similani was born in uh, 1956 in Swaziland, now Eswatini. He was born Malanga, his father's surname, but was raised from infancy on his aunt's Similani homestead, located in a remote part of the country, far from a paved road. In exchange for herding the family cattle and helping with the harvest, the Similanis paid his school fees. 
He was described by his aunt as a very brilliant child who started school later than most of his peers, but soon surpassed them. By the time he was in high school, however, David had lost interest in school. Although his uncle was still willing to pay his school fees, David dropped out in the 10th grade. After that, his aunt says he was, quote, all over the place, unquote. Uh, He would spend nights in the forest, eat from other people's fields, and come back to the homestead and sleep in the crawl, an enclosure for animals. I think it must be where the word corral comes from. Oh. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Look it. Uh, uh, English stole another word. (laughs) As we do. Yes. (laughs) He first got into trouble with the law in 1976 at the age of 19 when he stabbed his girlfriend. Huh? Yeah. She didn't die. And he served 15 months in prison. Between 1976 and 1993, he was convicted of eight different offenses, ranging from robbery to rape. He was convicted of indecent assault, robbery, and housebreaking in the late 70s and early 80s. He once went to jail for threatening to stab a woman with a knife in order to steal a handbag containing the equivalent of $2. In 1991, he was arrested and charged with robbery and rape. On June 23, 1993, he was convicted, although he professed innocence. He was sentenced to six years and released sometime in 1999. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, terror takes center stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia... Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. 
All right, now it's time to hop on into the timeline. So Woo-hoo! after he was released, Similani found a place to live for about $7 a month. It was a single room with one light bulb and no electrical outlets or running water. Between 1999 and 2001, women in Swaziland began disappearing. In some instances, children who accompanied their mothers also went missing along with them. In each instance, the missing women were reported to have left their homes in order to take up employment offered to them, never to return. At the time, unemployment in Swaziland stood at nearly 30 percent. So men from Swaziland often left to South Africa to work in mines. The women and children would be left at the homesteads, which sometimes included several buildings with housing for different wives and older relatives, as well as land for agriculture and animals. The women were often desperate to find more immediate income. Most of the missing women were from rural areas. Many had dropped out of school, were poor and uneducated, and were living off the food that they grew or donations. They lived without electricity or running water. In 2016, Nolanla Villakati, a professor at the University of Swaziland, said, quote, In this situation of socioeconomic vulnerability, all hope is pinned on this one female member of the family. What becomes important is finding the job and all issues of personal safety just fade into insignificance, unquote. In December 1999, Nelsaiwi Nziniza, 25, of Madlenya, vanished. Sifawe Goodness Geninza, 17, of Feni, disappeared in September of 2000. Sizakeli Letsiwe Magagula, 20, of Amalangeni, disappeared in 2001. In January 2001, 15-year-old Sibongile Dlamini was with her older sister, Bosho, at a bus station when Similani introduced himself to them. He displayed an obvious interest in Bosho. Over the next three months, he became a regular visitor at the Dlamini homestead in the St. Philip's area as he courted Bosho and got to know the family. Sibongile remembered him as a quiet man who always seemed to have money, though she never knew where it came from. A friend of the Dlamini family later said that Similane always brought gifts to the family. Quote, he would bring these things, these groceries, and we were convinced that where they came from, there was life. Unquote. He claimed to be a recruiter looking for female workers. Bosho knew that her sister, Tuana, badly needed a job. She'd recently left her marital homestead and was caring for four children on her own. Tuana was the first to leave with Similani to start a job as a maid in Ezulwini, a valley just outside Mumbane. About a month later, he offered employment to another sister, Tandy, who traveled with her 18-month-old child, Kwanda. Another month later, she hadn't returned, and the family became worried. They had no phone, and Sibongili said, quote, Each time we suggested we go and see Tandy's place, he would say that Tandy was busy. He would perpetually postpone the visit. Similane brought a letter to the family, supposedly from Tandi, in which was written in type, quote, It is a long time not coming to see you, but there is nothing I can do because at present I am alone at work. My partner is on leave until April 8th. Anyway, I'm okay here. Nothing wrong so far. Unquote. <laughs> nothing oh, to see here. <laughs> nothing yet. Everything is awesome. <laughs> so in the letter, uh, she asked for her sister Vosho to meet her. And soon after Vosho left with Similane, 
Tuana, Tandi, Vosho, and the little Kwanda were never seen alive again. On February 20th, 2001, Rose Nunn and her 13-month-old baby, Nathando Kumalo, left home for the social welfare offices. They did not come home as expected that afternoon, and her live-in boyfriend, Umbangene Mlotza, reported their disappearance to their parents, who lived next door to their home in Manzini. The police were contacted, but nothing came of it. Hmm. I wonder what the, I mean, the police broke up that protest that we knew about. So maybe they're just as trash there as they are here. Yeah, possibly. In mid-March of 2001, 26-year-old Samantha Kagasi Ngobesi disappeared. She had planned to travel to Mbane, the capital of Swaziland, to apply for a job at the high court. Samantha had a law degree from the University of Swaziland and was hoping to use it. But at the bus stop in Manzini, she met a man who promised her a different job, and she never made it to Mbane. The man told her that he could get her a position at a chemical company. The job would pay 4,000 MLGeni per month, which is a Swatini currency, and it was equivalent to a little less than $500, which was a very good salary in Swaziland. Oh, yeah. And then what is this, in the early 2000s? Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, also, this bus stop. Uh, oh, yeah. That seems to be his seems deal. Seems to be yeah. his M.O. Yeah. Um, excited about this opportunity, she ran home to change. Mabel Kagasi, Samantha's mother, described how hopeful her daughter had been when she came home. Samantha left again to meet this man and never returned. Around the same time, a man named Simon Moza reported that his wife, Fikile, a 37-year-old preschool teacher, and his one-year-old daughter, Lindo Kule, were missing. Simon had last seen his wife and daughter on the night of March 10th. The couple did not live together during the work week, and she had left Simon late to head back to the home of her in-laws. Simon was concerned because Fikile and Lindokule would have to walk in the dark as there were few streetlights in Swaziland. Moza found out that his wife never arrived at her in-laws' house, nor did she show up for her teaching job. He contacted Fikile's family, but they hadn't seen her either. He reported her missing to the police in Matsapa. On April 2nd, 2001, at Eagle's Nest Farm in Malkerns, a one-market town 15 miles from the city of Mankayane, a worker came upon the decomposing bodies of two women and a baby girl. The bodies had been in the bush about three weeks, and one of the child's legs was missing. Simon Matza was later able to identify two of these bodies as his wife and child. Mm. Fikile's hands had been tied behind her back, and she had deep cut wounds on her head and neck. He recognized little Lindokule by her clothes. The third body was not positively identified. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. A few days later, a skull was found in a plastic KFC bag in the same area. On April 6, 2001, a herd boy discovered a human skeleton on a forest in Malkerns. The police went there and found remains which consisted of a human skull, ribs, and other bones scattered all over the scene. Around the same time, police received another report from the Eagle's Nest farm workers that they had discovered more human skeletons. On April 10th, six skeletons and a decomposing body were also found all within a short distance. Police began warning people to stay in their homes at night. Wow. Um, so this is a lot. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of decomposing skeletons bodies. everywhere and skeletons everywhere. And I'm also thinking about the climate, which we described earlier, like it was probably, yeah. yeah, subtropical, warm, wet, um, yeah. all those things, which, um, would I mean, cause a body with, to, to decompose. decompose faster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Superintendent Jomo Mabuso and Senior Superintendent Ketotwaki Ningamandla 
were assigned to head the investigation. Their cell phone numbers were printed in the newspaper, and they led a team of nine other officers. That's wild that they printed their cell phone numbers in the newspaper. I know, but yeah. I, I mean, this, that's a go-getter yeah, of a detective if I yeah. ever did see yeah, one. Yeah, they're going to be working that hard for sure. Yeah, yeah. On April 12, 2001, they brought more than 200 police officers and soldiers to comb the Eagle's Nest area. An additional 13 sets of remains were discovered. Holy shit. Yeah. Some just loose bones, but several more recent victims with flesh still remaining. Jesus. Wow. Híjole, that is a lot. Yeah. Uh, the bodies of four babies were among the dead. Many of the women had their hands tied, were naked, and appeared to have been sexually assaulted. About half of the women had been decapitated. Relatives of missing women soon flocked to the area to see if their loved ones were among the victims. So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. Hit it, Beth. <laughs> Uppercut. Uppercut. <laughs> Hook. Hook. Kick. Kick. Tybo. <laughs> So Swaziland, or Eswatini, is approximately 90% Christian, and religious people throughout the country were calling for prayer to find the killer. King Maswati III's mother suspected demon activity and oh. urged her subjects to pray for salvation, saying, quote, the demons have spread everywhere and they can only be subdued by prayer, unquote. Oh, well, you know, there's something that we say in the Black um, community. Um, it's called, it's push. Pray until something happens. Um, and that seems to be what she is yeah. um, encouraging. It sounds like it. Um, the demon activity is a new one, though, as far as crime theories. Yes, that, um, that is new. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Interesting take. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Interesting take. <laughs> um, so that's an <laughs> option. But uh, the League of Churches blamed the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God. And the story we covered in episode 51 and 52 about Sister Credonia Merwinde yep. and her cult that ended up murdering over 700 people. Yep. That's right. Um, women groups blamed a traditional and sexist culture. Another valid take. Yeah, valid yeah. theory. Yeah. Based on the location of the bodies and the last places the missing women had been seen, the police traced the routes of the victims. Most of them were last seen in or known to have been traveling to Malkerns or Menzini, towns where job seekers might go. Police also attempted to track down those who had last been seen with the victims, many of whom had last been seen with a man who had promise them work. All right, we're getting somewhere. So South African police officers were brought in. <laughs> Just because white <laughs> ice isn't colder, y'all. Anyway, including specialists in forensics, investigative psychology, and profiling. Besides assisting with the investigation, South African police were meant to help identify the bodies using DNA profiling and facial reconstruction, expertise that was not available in Swaziland. All right, I'll allow it. <laughs> Wait till you get to the next part of the story. Okay. 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 All right. The police eventually narrowed down their search to a specific person whose description was widely circulated. The man was then recognized at a supermarket by the husband of a missing woman, and the police apprehended him. It was David Similani. Got him. Got him. Uh, so Similani was arrested in Langano the fourth largest town in Iswatini, on April 25th, 2001. He was brought to the local police station. Police said that Similani confessed to the crimes then and there without coercion. Similani said he would lure the women to the forest with job prospects, then tied his victims and sexually assaulted them, stabbing and strangling them with his bare hands if they resisted too much. Uh, almost like he was just describing what he ate for lunch yeah, that day. Yeah, yeah. No biggie. Um, did you see the video of him 
I didn't. Was he speaking in English? No, it was it was subtitled. But his demeanor is just like that. Just very calm. This is what I did. You can ask me questions. Um, but I'm just gonna sit here, legs crossed, relaxing and maxing in in the chair. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was really something. So he also beheaded many of them before or after death. Similani often stole his victims' money and valuables. Among his victims were several pregnant women. His motive, he said, was revenge against women due to the quote-unquote false rape charge from 1991, for which he served time. Oh boy. So on May 8th, 2001, Similani made a second confession to the magistrate Charles Masango. The only other person present was the magistrate's interpreter. Semilani was advised by the magistrate that he was not obliged to say anything, but that whatever he said would be recorded and might be used as evidence at his trial. Though the common language of Eswatini is Siswati, the confessions were written by the translator in English, the language used for police and court records. The translator wrote the confession, which was 10 pages long, and then reread it to Semilani, who agreed that it was accurate and correct. In this written confession, he again claimed that he had killed the women out of revenge for having been wrongfully convicted of rape. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, that June, the police took Similani out of his holding cell so he could lead them to more bodies to add to those found in Malkerns. Much of the search was videotaped, including when he was read his rights and told that what he showed them could be used against him in court. The video follows Similani as he leads officers to skeletons in heavily forested areas, very difficult to access. The bodies were found in Four distinct areas, Mankanyane, Malkerns, Masa Jenny, and Sidvakadvo. These areas are as little as 15 miles apart and as much as 50. Wow. So he was busy. all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> all like his auntie like said. His auntie. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Shout out to the aunties. <laughs> she knew. Yes. <laughs> okay. So Similani led police to the top of a remote mountain to retrieve some of the final bodies. The police walked through thick, pathless bush and climbed large boulders to get there. Eventually, 45 bodies were found. But because of advanced decay, Similani was only charged with 35 murders. Although Similani repeatedly claimed in his confession that he killed the women out of revenge, police suspected something else. Belief in healers and in moody and traditional medicine is widespread in Eswatini. Yeah, that was another thing I gleaned from the video with him and interrogators is they were like, no way you d- you climb all these mountains, went through all these forests and bush all by yourself. What? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he he was just like, no, it was me. Just chilling. It was me. Uh, So these traditional healers are for many Swazis the first line of defense against hard times, whether caused by illness, romance, or poverty. They're called upon to harness the power of traditional medicine called muti and heal wounds both physical and spiritual. In 2000, there were as many as 8,000 traditional healers in Swaziland versus 150 medical doctors. The most extreme version of muti involves ritual murder, also known as moody murder or medicine murder in which a human being is killed and his or her body parts made into a concoction or a charm. When HIV struck Swaziland in the 2000s, the number of young people dying of AIDS reached epic proportions, and those who had the means would seek out the most potent protection they could find, and this was often muti. And um, HIV hit Swaziland particularly hard in the 2000s. It hit South South Africa and Swaziland 
for some reason more than um, the rest of the continent. Um, so I thought that that was interesting. If you if you you know Google the AIDS crisis, um, yeah, or the AIDS epidemic, and look at a map of Africa, and it, a lot of the, them believe that it was demons, or um, they didn't really believe that it was a virus, yeah. and so they were looking for spiritual ways to stave off the illness. Mm-hmm. And one of one of the things was moody, right? Another thing that was circulated to rid yourself of of the virus or protect yourself was to continue having sex with women. And uh, that ended up spreading the disease oh, more. Wow. And there was, uh, you know, like uh, condoms weren't... Um, not a oh, thing, gosh, really? Not, yeah, not a thing that men in the area were particularly fond of. And so the disease um, just became more widespread. Um, so it's kind of a perfect storm of, when when you look at the theories, a perfect storm of, uh, oh, it could have been a, a demon. Maybe it was a, yeah. a spiritual thing. So yeah. it makes sense. Um, in my mind, but right. I'm not explaining it very well. So I'm going to shut up. <laughs> anyway, the belief in Muti is not relegated to the rural poor and uneducated. In fact, a former advisor to the king was quoted in WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks. <laughs> as <laughs> saying that King Maswati III believes in traditional healing and, quote, attempts to use Muti to attack the king are taken seriously, unquote. Hmm. Noted. <laughs> Don't do that. (laughs) I won't. So police suspected that Similane was working with someone else or more than one other person and Mm -hmm. killing for body parts to be sold and used for Moody. Several of the skeletons were missing bones when they were found. Similane did not have a job, yet he had money. The bodies were found in remote areas that were difficult to get to, yet he was somehow able to get there and get his victims there. But when confronted, David denied that he had any partners in these crimes. But on June 12, 2001, during a videotaping seven weeks after his arrest, Similani gave up three additional names. All names were famous men in Swaziland. Peace Mafana Boy Moza, a wealthy businessman. Majehebutimba Dlamini, a member of parliament. And a third man, a former member of parliament. These were the people, he said, who hired him to kill. Similane claimed that he could get 3,000 emilgeni, about $370 U.S. a month. He would also get two combis, communal taxis, and a sprinter minibus worth a total of 300,000 emilgeni, worth about $37,000 in U.S., Whoa. which is an Whoa. enormous That's amount of money in Swaziland. Money. Yeah. Woo. He claimed that Boy Matza and his partners, quote, are the ones who got me into this line of work, unquote. The conspiracy theory in me. Um, if you buy that these dudes were involved and you buy the fact that um, these maybe these wealthy businessmen were um, like trying to stay wealthy or keep disease away or do all the things that people seek healing for. Right. That it makes sense that they might have pursued Mutu murder. I don't know. It's too early for my takes. I'm sorry. So he further claimed that in order to ensure that nobody betrayed the syndicate, it was agreed that should anyone get arrested, that person should never expose the others. Those who had not been caught would then finance the legal defense of the one who was arrested. Similane also claimed that his employers had personally participated in seven murders and that they had used a Nissan one-ton pickup truck belonging to one of the partners to transport the victims to secluded places. But all three men he named had been prominently featured in the newspapers that same month, so it's possible that he simply picked them because they were fresh in his mind. Boy Mota had 
publicly offered to pay for the coffins of Similani's victims. This gesture prompted rumors that he was involved with the killings and could have given Similani the idea of naming him as an accomplice. Police have claimed that they thoroughly investigated these men and found their connection to be a figment of David's imagination. They eventually concluded that he was working alone with a motive of revenge for the rape conviction. Once all the bodies were recovered, the next step was figuring out who the victims were. The written confession included a numbered list of the victims, but it had two number sevens, and several of the women Similani said he had killed were either unnamed or identified only by their surname. Although Similani was eventually held on 35 counts of murder, four years into his trial, the number of counts was reduced to 34 when it was discovered that two of the victims named were the same person. Damn it. (laughs) Since most of the bodies were decomposed, the police turned to using the victim's clothing as proof of identity. Friends and family of all the women that Similani admitted to killing were brought in to match pieces of clothing to those that belonged to their sisters, daughters, and wives. Some of the clothing had been found near the bodies and Some had been found in the possession of one of Similani's girlfriends. With the help of the Department of Anatomy at the University of Pretoria in South Africa, reports on at least some of the skeletal remains were made, but they only proved the sex and the likely age range and race of the bodies found. Even after years of waiting, DNA evidence never came through. Not a single body could be positively identified by experts post-mortem, nor could the cause of death be confirmed. Oh my gosh, DNA didn't come through? Well, they didn't didn't do it. (laughs) Oh, okay. I was going to say, DNA didn't work? No, Um, they just didn't 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 do it. it. Yeah. Oh, wow. And, um... Oh, that's really disappointing. Yeah. That's oh my gosh! It seems it seems so simple, but I imagine the resources perhaps just were not there. Probably, yeah. Um, so over the years between his arrest and the trial, it was reported that Similani went on a hunger strike, overdosed on some unspecified substance, had a stroke, beat his head against the wall, and tried to hang himself with a shirt. In October of 2004, he was taken to Mbabane Government Hospital, where he was unconscious for five days in the ICU. Both in 2001 and 2004, he was reported to be very sick with an undisclosed illness, leading many to believe that he was HIV positive. So now we're going to get into the trial. So the police and prosecution spent the next five years building a case against him. The trial commenced in 2006, and the first of 83 witnesses for the prosecution appeared on May 29th. The Crown relied heavily on the evidence of the written confessions, one from the day after he was arrested and the other taken 12 days later in front of the magistrate. The trial was played with delays. According to one report, there were 20 formal postponements between September 2004 and August 2009. It took almost 10 years from the time of Similane's arrest to the time the trial was finally concluded. By 2010, both senior investigators had died. Whoa! Oh! Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. What a lengthy trial process. We thought the OJ trial was long. <laughs> oh my God. So the prosecution rested in January of 2011. Similani's defense attorney boycotted the trial, accusing the judge of bias. And Similani was assigned a new lawyer who was nicknamed Totsi, a South African term for a gangster. After just one week of familiarizing himself with the entire trial, Totsi presented his case, calling just one witness. David Similani. Totsi decided that 29 of the 34 counts had not even been proven by the prosecution, so he just decided to ignore them completely. Oh! 
<laughs> There's a strategy. Okay. Yeah, all right. The remaining five victims, including the three Tlamini sisters, had all last been seen with Similane or a man thought to be Similane. On the stand, Similane admitted he had known each of them, but said before they went missing, he had just taken them to an employment agent, Sipo Tlamini, a name that had never been brought up before in the previous 10 years. <laughs> what? Uh, in Swaziland, the name Sipo Tlamini is very common, similar to how John Smith is in America. <laughs> okay. All right, buddy. Okay. Uh, okay. This- Look at this guy over here. Look at him. Oh, my God. Similani's testimony and cross-examination took two days. He showed no remorse and pleaded innocent, claiming the confessions had been coerced through torture. But on March 23, 2011, Similani was found guilty of murder on 28 of the 34 counts and sentenced to death by hanging. After an appeal to the Swazi Supreme Court in November 2011, it was decided that the trial took an inadmissibly long time. Uh, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But the death sentence was confirmed. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Tell us, Beth. Similane became a born-again Christian, and he preaches to fellow inmates. His family has never visited him in jail and have said that the death penalty serves him right. Wow. Mm, But even before the end of the trial, they said that they would not welcome him back home, even if he was found not guilty. And even the authorities in the area said that Similani was not welcome to come back to the area. Can you blame him? No. Uh, So his aunt, Alexina Similani, said that she did not feel pity for him. And if Similani eventually faces the noose, her last words to him would be, quote, you must rest in peace, David. We will meet you in the other world. If you are a question we will meet in heaven but if you are not you will go to hell unquote (laughs) wow auntie okay bars (laughs) when asked why she had no pity on Similane despite that he was reportedly a born-again Christian Alexina likened the serial killer to a cannibal quote if a cannibal lives on human flesh it will always kill to eat unquote Uh, wow I think she ain't wrong I don't think this is this is the auntie I need to get in touch with right now so she can uh, basically map out the rest of my life. Tell me all the right choices to make moving forward. That's what aunties are for. Yeah. And we need more aunties like Alexina in the world. Uh, so many people in Eswatini still believe that Similani couldn't have done this on his own and someone was getting away with murder. Samantha's sister, Charmaine Kagazi Munro, said, quote, the people he killed didn't have much money. 
These were people looking for jobs. We never heard of him housebreaking. So where was he getting his money from? Unquote. Don't know. Yeah. Where is the money? <laughs> what? What? Conspiracy theorists. One, two, three, go. Let's go. <laughs> Samantha's mother, Mabel, added, quote, he brought them to some syndicate, to some people to do the job. He was bringing them, getting paid and throwing them away, unquote. Ooh. This one has some profound quotes in this episode. Yeah. Wow. Vusi Delamani, a police officer whose wife, Cindy, was murdered, remembered thinking that when Cindy left, she was going to be meeting with more than one person. He also thought that they were going by car. So he believes that Similani was just a middleman. As far as we can tell, Similani's execution has yet to be carried out. The last official executions in Swaziland took place in 1983. And these were convictions for ritual murder, by the way. And King Mizwadi III has not allowed a hanging since his coronation in 1986. So I guess, you know, he's all right for that. There's that. <laughs> that. Um, so when you weigh the pros and the cons, um, yeah. still bad. Still bad. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> now we're going to get into what we what we think made uh, Semilani uh, snap in our takeaways. What do you got, Beth? So although I think it's possible that Similani was killing these people for body parts okay. and working with other people. I think uh -huh. it's more probable that he was just a run-of-the-mill serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> You're not that special, Similani. Yeah, not not wow. that special. And, but I don't, I don't buy his motive. I mean, thank you. Talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he was probably pissed that he went to jail for rape. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and maybe, maybe he didn't do that one. But mm, okay. it sounds like mm -hmm. he had raped women. <laughs> Yeah, it did. Yeah. I mean, he, he had been arrested for yes, it. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And it's on his record, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, in these murders, there was definitely a sexual motivation, which mm -hmm. there wouldn't be if you're just killing people for uh, body, parts. body parts. right? Sure, and yeah. when they, they were found, when the victims were found, they were tied up and some showed signs of having been sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think for sure... There was a sexual motivation. Yeah. And uh, he was probably angry with women in general for some reason. Uh, yeah. Shitty childhood, whatever, you know. Maybe. The usual, yeah. the huge yeah. with yeah. Ser serial killers. Yeah. Um, I think he just used his quote unquote wrongful conviction as an excuse. You know, I do, too. And I but I actually think it's a really poor excuse because when his it was women in his family who showed him kindness yes. when he had nowhere else to go. Yeah, I know um, this. This happens, though, with men sometimes because the women in their lives are the ones that are there that show up and everything. Yeah. Then they're the ones that get all the anger. It, it's not oh, fair, but it but it's, it doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. No, but our you know, our psyches yeah. don't always <laughs> make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Isn't it weird how human <laughs> yeah. brains and minds work? Um, Stupid brains. Oh my God. But yeah, that is, that is interesting that um, when you look at his past, but they were there for you. I know. <laughs> they even said after you were convicted, we'll see you in heaven if you are a Christian. Yeah. But if you're not, we'll see you <laughs> in see hell. You in hell. Which, <laughs> to which I say, have you been around in 2022? We already <laughs> we, are in here. hell. We're so, here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, I when I was researching this case, apparently there were two serial killers active in Eswatini I, at this time? I saw that somewhere. I saw that yeah. somewhere, but I couldn't 
um, there's no other Eswatini serial killer. Okay. That I know okay. of. Well, I think maybe there was a maybe one in South Africa, but um, huh. I couldn't find I couldn't find who it was. But I saw that that was mentioned in one article, and I I tried to look for information about it, but I couldn't find anything. Well, see, that's the difference between you and me because I saw it and I just and you're went like, with well, it. There, there yep. were. <laughs> it was on the internet, and, and it now has I to believe be it. A fact. Uh, so. Uh, also, I love conspiracy theories. I and know. this case is just so Shackful. perfect yeah. for all of it. Yeah. Um, so conspiracy theorists, I mean, this, I just love that. Um, I love an opportunity to um, get those Indulge conspiracy theory that. formulas yeah, yeah. going. Yeah. Um, also reflecting on the context. So men had men, the employment was super low and men were leaving the country to go work uh, at the mines in South Africa to be next to Elon Musk. Yeah. Um, and that left women in the society in a really vulnerable position. And so I don't, right. I, part of me thinks we shouldn't be surprised at how great the number was yeah. when you consider how vulnerable and in need and desperate um, for desperate these people money, were income, to support yeah. their families. Right. Yes. Um, and so it just opened them up to be susceptible Absolutely. to, um, um, and, and their safety was compromised yeah. because of the, the lack, the, just the lack of, of their, that was in their existence. Reason. Sources, so, yeah. Mm -hmm, yeah. Um, and then I uh, watched the video of him talking. It's in it's in the sources. Um, and it's really creepy how relaxed he is, even though it's not in English. I read the subtitles, but you if you're just watching his body language, everybody else in the room is emotional. Why did you do this? You weren't working alone. How dare you kill all these women? I mean, they were just throwing the book at him. Right. Um, and and he like, was just like, have. you know what? I did it. Yeah, yeah. it was me. Um, and it was just really, um, it's chill Weird. chilling. Yeah. Weird. And odd. it's yeah. odd. Oh, they kept, they kept saying, they kept like pleading with him in the video, like, just tell the truth, be honest. And he was like, I already told yeah, you I already, the truth. I, I already did am it. being honest. Yeah, I did it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they seem to not want to let go the idea of him doing it on his own, which again, at the time of the, at the time, if we're looking at context, the nation was really suffering from this AIDS epidemic. Right. Um, and I also um, was under the impression, kind of like we have here with law enforcement, is that when something really bad is happening in the setting of other really bad things happening, like police are just like, we got to solve this crime. We got to close this now. And so part of me thought of Similani as kind of like a boogeyman. So even if he didn't do all the 45 murders the, they were, it was they were a gonna relief. pin it on him yeah it was a relief to to close this case right for closure for the the families of the victims but also for the community right um right. and uh the problem of poverty the poverty is i think a really important aspect of this uh Absolutely. case because yeah. of how desperate these women were um uh, some of them were even um turning to sex work at the time um and uh desperation contributes to vulnerable women doing uh, engaging in sex work or se yeah. the sex profession um it uh contributes to intimate partner violence um this desperation this poverty is just a big problem yeah. and so i think that that connection has to be pointed out when talking about these murders right that's all i got well, so now i guess it's did a really uh, good job 
job on that one. So we did. We no, did you it. Did. You did. Internet high five. <laughs> uh, so thank you, my friend. I love it when you say nice things to me. Okay, but don't do it anymore. Stop. Okay. Now it's time to talk about how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> I'll never forget when I first pitched that song to you when we were at lunch. What an idea. And you were like, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. We were in a restaurant. It, like the restaurant went quiet. Uh, so and so here funny. we are today. Yep, here yeah. we are. <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Um, well, I think that this is a good episode to reflect on the fact that crime can be a symptom of other problems oh, in yeah. society, mostly because of lack or lack of resources, lack of education, lack of food, lack of housing. So my recommendation to prevent people from getting murdered is to um, how can we how can we help? So find a mutual aid organization in your area that you can donate to, not just money, but you can volunteer your time. Um, and what these mutual aid organizations do is help reduce ignorance and lack of awareness around these problems. So they mutual aid groups in your area are dialed into the issues plaguing your specific wow. community. And they're already like doing the work. They just right. need help. So even if you can't give your time or money, checking them out on, on social media, there's a, a website, mutualaidhub.org. See what's in your area and just follow them. Learn about the issues that they are fighting to fix um, and that they're already working on. And you can elevate those um, issues by talk, telling your friends about them, sharing their posts um, and supporting them in any way that you can. So that's Very my recommendation cool. to help um, with the po you. poverty problem. Yeah. Um, Wendy, uh, I was just imagining myself on the Miss America stage. <laughs> I want to end poverty, world poverty. <laughs> now give me my crown. Uh, so now it's shout out, poor, shout out time where we shout out any content um, by or about any marginalized or othered folks um, or any true crime goodies. Okay. Um, and I just wanted to shout out the movie Prey on Hulu. Have you seen? I've, I have not watched it because um, it's not really in my wheelhouse, but okay. um, it looks really exciting. It is really exciting. Um, and it is 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. And it's about a warrior who is a girl warrior, a female warrior. Um, and she could be two-spirit, but I didn't get that from the movie. Um, anyway, it's really, really exciting. And it's just really awesome to see an indigenous woman right. uh, kicking ass. Yeah, isn't it? Underestimated like at every turn. Part of Sorry. the Predator series. Is it? I don't know. That was my understanding, but uh, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. That's why I didn't watch it. I was like, uh, because that kind of movie just uh, stresses me out. <laughs> oh, my God. I love it. Uh, OK, I won't take you to go see the premiere of Predator with me, but I don't I don't. But now that I'm thinking about the monster in the movie, it is kind of Predator-esque. Hmm. But anyway, it's just cool to see uh, indigenous um uh, people kicking oh, ass. Oh, for on, sure. On, yeah, on very screen. cool. So, very uh, what cool. do you got? Um, I got a true crime goodie. It's called Blackbird and it's on Apple TV Plus. Is it about a, the Beatles? No. Did they do something? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
it's based on a true story about a guy who gets sent to prison on a drug charge. And uh, then he's asked to try and get a confession from a serial killer. So he's in jail with this serial killer and he has to try to like make friends with him and get (gasps) get information out of him. Yeah. Oh, that sounds really yeah. bad. Yeah. Okay. It's good. Awesome. And then I also wanted to say that Reservation Dogs is back with season two on Hulu. Pew, pew, pew. pew. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's out now? It's out. Yeah. I already oh, watched yeah. a couple of episodes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So uh, the shout outs are Prey Movie on Hulu, Blackbird on Apple TV Plus, and Reservation Dogs is back, y'all. Also on Hulu. Boy, oh boy, this... I really loved this episode. Yeah, this was a yeah, really, really interesting case to dive into. It was. But that's it for today. In the meantime, Beth, where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join our discussion group on Facebook at Fruit Loops Pod Discussion. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App or you can become a monthly patron through Patreon. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. So this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time... Look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. detective came and knocked on the door and I said is it Renee and he just gave me that solemn look it was the worst day ever the proof podcast is back with a new case and a new season 23 years ago 18 year old Renee Ramos went missing her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town I don't think that they arrested the right people it's about time somebody's trying to do something she had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, 
people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.